Welcome to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast for foodie book lovers, where food is the story. This week, I'm being remote again with award-winning author Benjamin Myers, whose success with his previous novels, particularly The Gallows Pole, has given him the accolade of one of the most powerful new voices in literature. In this, his eighth novel, The Offing, he tells a Homeric tale of Robert, a 16-year-old boy who sets out across 1950s Yorkshire to Robin Hood's Bay and finds a gloriously long summer of food, poetry and an unlikely friendship with an eccentric and artistic older woman called Dulcie. It feels like it was written in another era, and I asked him if that was his intention. Um, it's a story that kind of evolved from something else entirely. Um, <laughs> originally it was going to be about a tramp in an orchard, and I'm not sure how... What, what that idea was about I just had a an, often my stories start with a place or an image in my head and um, there's an orchard that I visit quite regularly and I thought I want to write something set here and I had an idea about a man who ends up camping out in this orchard and then the story seemed to evolve and the man got younger and younger until he was about 16 and there was and the orchard disappeared <laughs> So uh, and suddenly it was by the by the seaside at Robin Hood's Bay in North Yorkshire, um, but that is a place that I visit regularly, uh, and I stay in a very specific location, which I've sort of managed to keep secret because the book is set in a real place, which is incredibly beautiful, and you soon you don't want loads of tourists finding it and ruining well, it. Well, it sounds for you. selfish, but yeah, that yeah, that I've had to I've had to keep it quiet and not tell a soul. Um, well, it's interesting because actually, you know, what you're talking about, my question, I suppose, is, you know, you've taken us to another time when life wasn't like that. But what you're saying is it, it is actually still like that in Robins Hood Bay. Um, well, geographically, it, it is as described in the book. But yeah, to, I mean, to answer the question, um, it, it is deliberately set in another time and is meant to be escapist because I wrote it off the back of several novels which, um, although have done quite well and good reviews and, you know, happy with the sales, they, they took the toll upon me writing them because they're all quite bleak and there's a lot of... Um, they're quite quite visceral and there's there's flashes of violence in my books, particularly the, the Gallows Pole, which is the book that um, listeners might know of mine. Um, and just for my own kind of sanity and well-being, I thought I need to, um, well, A, get out of where I live, which is the uh, Calder Valley in West Yorkshire, which is beautiful in the spring and summer, but it's an oppressive, grey, wet place for, for many months of the year. And I've set several books here. But I also wanted to escape the current, um, the current contemporary era, and I started writing the offing in um, 2015. And while I was writing it, there was all sorts of political upheaval in the wider world that I just wanted kind of no part of, really. Um, I hate to mention the B word Brexit, which now already feels quite archaic. Yeah, we're on that, C now. Yeah, yeah. But that was all happening as a backdrop. And it was just, it just felt like a ugly, divisive time. And I thought, I want to go. Uh, not literally, but in my head, I want to go somewhere sunny and beautiful and hopeful and somewhere where there is a message that goes beyond the kind of divisions of today into something 
a little deeper and a little broader and a little more humane, I think. Um, so so, so I had to, to write that story, I had to kind of um, settle on the correct time. And it, it felt like just after the Second World War, at, at a time of great shortage in terms of food, seemed like a good place to start when the country was in a kind of process. Well, not just the country, but Europe and the world was in a process of healing yeah but you know the 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 term the offing i didn't actually know this but you say that it is a place between the sea and the sky it's a place between it's it's a story of a man between he's it's a it's a rite of passage he's going from childhood to manhood in a place that he doesn't know from a an experience that he grew up with nothing to a land of plenty Mm at a time of transition in Britain. It feels very much, I mean, when you're talking about that kind of divisive Britain, you've still written about a, a division, a, a, a before and after, that sort of place in the middle where things develop and ripen over a, a very fecund period, you know, from April yeah. to what, September? Yeah. Harvest time, he heads home. And it's that wonderful, juicy blossoming, the kind of the the starting of the world and the starting for him of a, a completely new way of being. I'm glad you think so. I mean, that yeah, that was the entire um, early premise for the book was a, exactly that, really. The, the, the offing itself, as you say, is that area where the sea meets the horizon and is a kind of blurry uh, grey area um, and I think this summer when you're 16 I don't know what it was like for you but it's still a time that sticks in my mind that time when you leave school and you get the first taste of freedom and everything everything in the future is kind of optional you can continue to go to school if you want or college or university but you can also opt out and that freedom is very liberating and it's a time I think when you begin to kind of explore yourself and the world and you kind of look beyond the village or town or city in which you grew up and you realise that it's kind of all there for the taking if 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 you want it. And the offing is about that first flush of um, freedom that, that that you get at that age. But it's also, when you're 16, there's still a lot, a lot of restrictions and you think you know everything, but you actually know nothing, really. Yeah, and, 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 and that's the point, isn't it? You know, mm. he has to be with this much more experienced woman. She's not just older. She's really experienced. She's travelled the world. Just explain who Dulcie Piper is. Um, Dulcie is an older um, woman of... Uh, well, non-specific age, but maturing, shall we say, who has lived a life. Um, It's suggested that she's possibly from wealth and privilege. Uh, She mentions her father working overseas, so he's probably a diplomat. Um, And she's never really had to work, but she's one of those people who has used any uh, wealth or power or influence to enjoy life, but in a very bohemian way way in a in a way that would have been considered alternative and quite outrageous um so she's a patron really um and she's a patron of the arts in particular um and it transpires that she's lesbian and she's mourning the loss of her partner and i think in robert the young uh 
the young man in, in the story, she sees something of a blank canvas, really, someone else who she can pour her interests and tastes and hopes into in shaping him into... Um, it's not a form of manipulation, it's actually just bringing out something within him, which is what she's done with people in the past. But she's also a funny, witty, coarse, uh, vulgar... Um, everything you want from an older person, really. She's, yeah. she's, she's defying old age, she's defying convention... Um, well, she's ageless, she, actually, isn't she? She doesn't. She's not stopped by pains in joints, or she's perfectly able to do absolutely everything. She, so she feels timeless to me. We, she feels like a British eccentric that we recognise from literature and, and film. But actually, she, there's no stopping her, and her love of food and what she introduces Robert to, uh, it kind of encapsulates everything that you just said she was. So, you know, one of the things that she teaches him is actually about the land that he's lived on all his life and what's actually under his nose. And she gives him nettle tea. And that's your first food moment. So why don't you take us to that on page 30? It's no trouble for me as long as you fetch the nettles. Nettles? Yes, she said. We're having nettle tea. Do you take it? I hesitated, then shook my head. I always thought nettles were poisonous. Poisonous, said Dulcie. Of course not. They might sting, but that only comes from the tiny hairs on the leaves and stems, which act like little needles. When boiled, they soon become ineffective. She paused. Your retinence is to be expected. Folklore has taught us to fear this weed, to me it is a friend. It began out of necessity, this nettle habit of mine, but I found it, it's as good a quencher as any, and you look like you're spitting feathers. Yeah, and she and she does it again with wild garlic later. She's She helps him find his own way into his own world, the world that he already had but didn't appreciate. Yes, uh, and I'm quite... I, I should give you a little bit of context to to some of this food stuff that I'm writing about is that I lived in London for many years and then 10 years ago moved to Yorkshire and um, lived in a little cottage down a lane. And I threw myself into the countryside quite wholeheartedly, actually, and uh, began picking things like garlic and nettle and had a few bad experiences drinking nettle, treat, nettle tea uh I realise you have to get the mix quite right. Um, And if you drink too much of it, it can have quite adverse side effects. And the same with wild garlic, actually. But, uh, yeah, there's something very simple and beautiful and poetic about going out and foraging something that you could be eating within 10 minutes. Yeah, I'm a bit worried about your wild garlic. What are you doing? Because I'm going out at the moment eating wild garlic all the time from my woods. No, well, no, it was the nettle, the nettle tea I, I got quite into drinking. Um, you know, you need a twist of lemon just to give it a bit of taste and a right. bit of colour. But the last time I had it, um, I think perhaps the nettles were a little bit too young or I left too many stalks in. And I drank a strong cup of nettle tea and the effect on my stomach and beyond was quite powerful. And I don't think you need to know any more. <laughs> what I discovered is it's not a laxative, it's the opposite. Oh, God, really? Yeah, um, but I think I was a little bit gung-ho with it and um, I overdosed on nettle tea and I haven't drunk it since. 
Well, Robert doesn't. And that's what's interesting. He he's introduced to this this land of his in a completely different way, in a sensual way, in a very visceral way. He he lives in it. He's he's camping out in her studio in in the in the meadow. He's surrounded by the bird song of all times of day. He's woken up with the light. He hears the sounds of the world that have been all around him all his life, but he's never really noticed. And you play that out through the the food that is literally under his feet and, and under his nose. So that was a very healing thing for you when you went back to Yorkshire. Set against what? Did, were you having sort of issues with London life? What was it? Um, well, it was um, more the fact that the kind of worldwide recession was happening. So London was expensive to live. I'm from the north of England anyway, so it, it wasn't a major upheaval, although I'm from the suburbs rather than the countryside. And it was just a desire to be out of the city and outside and enjoying a different pace. I'm kind of in love with the landscape. Uh, all all landscapes really um and it's just something i wanted to explore and i did that through my writing but the the first few books i wrote back up north in the countryside were more brooding and gothic and dark and oh. as i said I, it wasn't a, a sort of mental space that i could keep occupying continuously so this is um and 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 robin hood's bay is actually quite a you know it's probably a, a hundred miles from where i live and it's a, it is quite a different landscape um, so it's not entirely on my doorstep. So even just writing about the next county over felt like escapism to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just I, I sort of I immerse myself in my surroundings and whatever I'm writing. Yeah. So when you were in London, were you really into food? Were you enjoying London's food scene? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'd say so. Um, I remember about um, 15 years ago, because um, I, I worked as a journalist in London, freelance journalist, uh, a monthly um, sort of men's lifestyle magazine rung up and said, do you want to come in for a meeting? And have you got any ideas? You know, you, you, maybe you could come and write for us. So I went into this meeting totally unprepared and they said, have you got any ideas? And I'd been freelancing for quite a long time and I didn't just want to pitch one article. I wanted a, a regular kind of writing gig. So I said, well, you don't have a, a restaurant critic. And they said, well, what ideas have you got? And I said, I think you should do an A to Z, a column, an A to Z column of different nationalities, starting with Albanian food. And then we could do Brazilian. And they, they sat there nodding their heads saying, well, that's interesting. They said, well, what qualifications do you have? What what is your experience with food? And I said, well, I eat it almost every day. <laughs> and they just kind of looked at me, and um, the meeting ended, and then never got a call back. So I did enjoy the food to the to the to the extent that I wanted to write about it, but they just thought I was some chancer, which I was. <laughs> All freelance journalists said chances. That's the whole point of it. I think it was the fact that I said I ate food almost every day instead of every day. I think that's where I was. The way up. that London food, I mean, it's 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 a fantastic food scene in London at, at, at the moment. I'm sure it will continue to be so, you know, after this is all over. But it is a bit fetishised and it is a bit posh and it is all a bit, you know, nothing to do with the roots of food, unlike the food that you present in Robin Hood's Bay. The lobster is fresh out of the sea 
Um, you know, everything that Dulcie puts on the table feels absolutely exquisite and unbelievable to somebody like Robert, who's never, ever experienced food like that before. But it, it is real. It is earthy. And that's the point, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's it's strange that this sort of earthy food has become fetishized in restaurants when actually it's some of the simplest, nicest food. Oh, my late mother-in-law um, lived by the sea in uh, East Riding, East East Yorkshire, and she could buy this. Which this is only five years ago. She could buy lobsters off a lobster fisherman fresh off the boat that day, um, just for a few pounds. Not particularly expensive, but really beautiful, fresh, um, and you know, at about a fifth the price you would pay in a restaurant. Yeah. Or um, last month I was staying in. Berwickshire in the Scottish borders for a month writing a book and I could go out and eat fresh Craster kippers um, from the smokehouse which would cost about five pounds for the meal yeah. and they're absolutely beautiful um, and these are the simplest indigenous foods that you can get in England really exactly um, it is one of the reasons why when Dulcie gives the lobster to Robert, it is one of the reasons why he stays or certainly he wants to stay. Do you want to give us that as your second food moment? She then gently but deftly pulled back the smaller jaw of the pincer until it broke away, revealing a cuticle shaped crescent of pure white flesh. She dipped this twice in the garlic butter and then tipped it to her mouth, pulling the meat from the shell. Then she folded a piece of bread into her mouth after it, chased it with a gulp of wine and took the nutcracker back from me and used it to crack the main claw, carefully picking off two or three tiny flecks of the broken shell. A hunk of flesh fell onto the plate. She skewered, she skewered some garlic leaves, then split the claw meat with the edge of her fork and twice dipped the whole lot into the butter again and then ate it, chewing noisily, and making a sound of satisfaction. Mmm. It's a wonderful sort of visceral pleasure of, of food. Um, and it's not greedy. It's greedily eating. And, and it's what absolutely captivates him. He's never seen a woman behave like this. It's a, a sort of an androgynous uh, act, isn't it? She's, she, she just doesn't play by the rules and he's never seen anything like this before and he's utterly entranced by it. So the food and the moment and this extraordinary woman kind of are changing his life in that moment. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I've used food as a kind of, um, it's, the, it's almost like a, a blackboard on which she is able to kind of educate Robert she uses it as a almost as a not as a tool but as a, as a way into him because he has come from a very austere world in the northeast of England from a mining community where food will be bought from you know the local corner shop or the the local butchers or whatever but ingredients were basic particularly after the war and one thing I wanted to do was show that Dulcie had access to all these foodstuffs and ingredients that the average person wouldn't be able to get, which kind of was another way of showing her connections to a kind of a black market of food. But also food is a universal language, really, isn't it? It's beyond language. It's how we commune and communicate um, 
often our memories of being in foreign countries are tied to meals. I would say that's probably true yeah. for a lot of people. And it's often uh, how we meet other people, whether it's, you know, staff in restaurants or cafes or just people on the next table. So food really is the great unifier. And it's, it, it was certainly the case between Robert and Dulcie. And of course, she it's not she's not just she's really well prepared he comes to her out of the blue but actually this is how she lives her life the your third food moment takes us into the pantry give us a little feel of what her pantry's like it was cool in there and i saw stacked in a rack at least two perhaps three dozen bottles of wine both red and white there were other bottles too containing spirits i had never tasted Whiskey, cognac, gin, cherry brandy, and ones labelled with words I'd never seen. Grappa, schnapps, metaxa. From floor to ceiling, the shelves were packed with tins of meat and fish and beans and soup, and different bags of flour, buckwheat and rye, plus sugar and rice, packets of biscuits, bars of chocolate. There were two large dried sausages, and jars featuring various seasonings, chutneys, pickles and preserves. Some of the labels appeared to be in German. There were boxes, too, containing exotic-looking delicacies, such as figs and dates and Turkish delight, and bottles of cooking oil and fruit cordial. As well as the large bowl of butter, there was also a tray of 20 or more eggs and two small wheels of cheese wrapped in green leaves. On the floor, in a wooden crate, there were fruit and vegetables. I saw apples, carrots, potatoes kale, celery, spring onion. An imposter in a stranger's house and surrounded by all this produce, I felt overwhelmed. It's a fantastic way of painting a picture of somebody. You can tell how much she's travelled. And at that time, you know, she must have done the Grand Tour herself um, in a bohemian way. Uh, She would have gathered all these ideas just the the word schnapps grappa metaxa you know the 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 cheeses where would she have got those from but also the fact that she would have grown her own potatoes and her own kale so what you've done just in that passage there is painted this extraordinary woman who was so impressive to robert and he begins to grow at this point he it's almost like the the introduction to her introduces him to the potential of the world yeah, and I actually did quite a lot of food research. That was the the main, um, the, the, the sort of predominant amount of research I did for this novel was actually looking at post-war rationing. Um, and I learned quite a lot because I'm not a, a, by any means an expert about food, but I discovered certain things which weren't available. For example, lemons were quite hard to oh. come by. So if you take a young man who's come of age during the war, it occurred to me he'd probably never tasted lemons. So just going back to the nettle tea, that was something that kind of um, really struck him. I mean, lemon is such a strong and powerful visceral taste that I tried to imagine what it must be like to, to kind of experience that for the first time, but at the age of 16 rather than three or four or five and then that kind of opens his palate to new sensations and the the things that he discovers in Dulcie's pantry are kind of representative of Europe really it's like she's dragged all of Europe into a tiny pantry in a cottage by the sea in North Yorkshire and to a man a young man wandering 
going he was just heading south but actually he's stumbled into this world within worlds it must have been the most extraordinary moment of opening up and seeing that hey he was right it was validation you know that to actually leave your door and head down the road not knowing where you're going to go to does actually reap rewards so i mean was that what you wanted when you were talking about wanting to find the joy the light you know the space out of the darkness this kind of blossoming this fireworks in the brain everything sort of joyfully exploding bursting I mean that's yeah that's what that the, that's the effect I was hoping to achieve. The book began and indeed begins as a journey, um, but it doesn't really travel very far. If you if you mapped it out, it doesn't go very far south really. But the journey is more internal in terms of who Robert becomes, and a lot of that is through food uh, and also poetry, and he, he gets into swimming in the sea. But it occurred to me as I was getting towards the end of the book that um, Robert has experienced new sensations, new tastes, new flavours. And once you've experienced that, it's hard to go back to a life of austerity. And, you know, his home life to me is black and white, but his life with Dulcie is colour. It's like that moment in The Wizard of Oz, you know, where suddenly colour washes over the screen and, and, and the world is seen anew. Um, so that determined the character of Robert really as he as he ages and lives beyond the book. I thought this yeah. is actually going to be the defining few weeks of his life because his world has now been coloured in, and once that has happened, there's no turning back. It's a liminal space, isn't it? And you know, it's the stuff of so much literature. It's going through a portal, and never the world shall shall be the same again. And and it isn't. And we're not going to. Do the, we won't give any spoilers on this one. In your fourth food moment, rather than going to the end, I wanted to give you a, get an idea of Dulcie as the beekeeper, the honey keeper, as she was known by her lover. Um, Robert is mature. He's filled out. He has worked the land through the summer for her. He is tanned. He's muscle. He's muscly. He's he's mature he's able to have proper conversations with her he's no longer the the shy naive 16 year old and this allows her to show much more of who she is just can you very briefly and without giving too much away explain that process well for a long time this novel the offing had the working title of apples and honey that's what the original document was called not because the book was going to be called that but just because I knew that I wanted Honey to feature in there somehow. And I think um, I know people who, 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 who keep bees and make honey. And often there's certain types of people. Um, I can't quite define it, but they're people who are happy being outside by themselves, tending to something. They're not remotely bothered about the possibility of being stung by bees. And it just seemed to me the perfect pursuit and the perfect sort of uh, way to spend time for a character like Dulcie who was very self-contained and she's at one with the landscape in which she lives so her her bees and her honey is is more broadly representative of who she is as a person 
And a, a little extract that I could read you is her introducing Robert to this this little world within a world. Yeah. I might get stung. Yes, you might, said Dulcie. But doesn't it hurt, I said. The taste of honey soon makes you forget that, she said. Anyway, you're probably thinking of wasps. And if they didn't sting, we might as well be boxing up blue bottles. And where's the fun in that? Look, the scout bees are doing a waggle dance. They must have been out searching for a new home. The timing is perfect. I'll instruct you. I reluctantly stepped into the suit. And Dulcie helped affix the mesh-masked headpiece. She stood back and surveyed me. Yes, that'll do. How do you feel in there? Trapped, I said. Ah, but it bears repeating. Nothing tastes as good as honey made by bees that feed on the heather of the North Yorkshire moors, Robert. You'll see. Trust me. I'd trade a ton of steak tartar and a barrel load of beluga for a jar or two of homespun honey. Do you know why? Because you like eating, I said. No, because honey is liquid poetry. And it felt to me like it's a bit of a metaphor for Dulcie herself. She's very thick-skinned. She's very sort of, you know, a bit alien comedy, actually, in many ways. And she... But she's sweet inside, and that's the point. And that's what she allows him finally to see through reading the lost poetry of her love. Um, And by Robert reading the poems to her for the first time, she hears the voice again of her lover who has died. And and it reveals this warm, lovely sweetness, the honey of the honey keeper. Was that a deliberate idea? It's hard to say whether anything is deliberate when you're writing a novel. Um, I sometimes discover things about my books and characters through uh, people's interpretations or reviews, actually, because things, I think, sometimes work on a subconscious level. And it's only when you step back and join the dots you you realise that certain themes have emerged. But I knew from the outset that Dulcie had to be a strong, uh, strong-willed, opinionated, but very likeable older woman. And one of the reasons for that is that I'd read a lot of interviews or seen interviews with uh, actors who said there were no roles for older women. And you often see in literature the there's a lot of novels about uh, older men having affairs with younger women, uh, you know, usually like some ageing academic who falls for a young artist or something. And it's a trope that I'm sick of and it's cliched and it's uh, it's one dimensional. So I decided from the outset I want an older woman and I want a younger man and I want it to be platonic as well. Because often when you talk about these pairings, it's expected that it's going to be sexual. And that's just simply not real life. Um, So yeah, Dulcie is... She has a tough exterior, as if she has donned a a beekeeper's suit. But by the end of the book, we we see that she has a sweeter, kind of uh, a soft centre that's quite honeyed and golden, shall we say. Yeah, and of course the pleasure that they get from each other, it doesn't have to be sexual, but it is sensual. And of course you can do all that wonderful stuff through food without having to be as obvious as as, as bringing the, 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 the obvious sort of sexual relationship in. You can avoid it. 
Yeah, and w- one thing when I was after before the book came out, uh, I was working on it with my editor, and she actually suggested at the time that um, there needed to be glimpses of sexuality in Robert inserted into, into the book because she she pointed out to me she said he's 16 years old and he's going out into the world for the first time you know 16 year olds have desires and um the the book was kind of lacking in that so I actually added a, f- a few short scenes which is Robert on the beach yes. kind of covertly ogling slightly older girls and women and just seeing them as uh, almost as aliens from another planet in terms of the possibility of him of any of them ever kissing him so he's very innocent and naive um but yeah desire is being awakened and i i I like i like novels which kind of explore that um you know dh lawrence is very good at it and the go between and some of thomas hardy's short stories um, you know, desire set against a rural um, rural setting. Yeah, it's a wonderful book to read over the next couple of months while we've all got so much time on our hands. Um, if you're not in the middle of the countryside, God, it would take you there. And uh, I am in the middle of the countryside and I've thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Benjamin Myers, thank you so much indeed. It was a total joy talking to you. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Cooking the Books. And if you like what you hear, please do rate and review the podcast and share where you can. And I'll be back next week. 